During the Advent season, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. But Jesus comes to us today through his word. And we look into Luke chapter 4, a time when Jesus came to his hometown, preached a message, and people wanted to kill him. Luke chapter 4, we begin with verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set those who are oppressed free to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three, and six, three years and six months, when a great famine occurred over the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Let's pray. Father, these are words that you have given. By the inspiration of your Spirit, we pray that you would apply this truth to our lives today. We pray, O oh God, that there would be hearts that are open and ready to receive what you, Lord Jesus, would want to give to us today through your Word. For we pray in his name. Amen. Jamie Langenbrunner is a young man that grew up in my hometown really had quite an amazing uh, career in hockey, all state and the state of Minnesota, uh, captain of the 2010 U.S. Olympic team. And he said that was one of the greatest honors that he ever experienced. Twice a Stanley Cup winner, in 1999 with Dallas and 2003 with New Jersey. And one of the things they do with the Stanley Cup, it's actually this big silver cup, and they have all the names engraved on the championship winners, is they allow each player on the team to have the cup for a day. And so it's usually brought to the hometown of the hockey player. And sure enough, in July of 2003, 
the Stanley Cup was brought to Cloquet, Minnesota. They expected about 500 people to come to their 2,000-seat hockey arena. But instead of 500, there were 5,000 people that came that day. Almost half the population of the whole city was there. When Jamie Langenbrunner came to town with the Stanley Cup, there was great excitement. And uh, he, I think he signed autographs for over four hours. I imagine his hand was a little bit tired after that day. Great excitement in his hometown. What happened when Jesus came to his hometown? I would suggest to you four things. Notice that some were fascinated with Jesus. And at least at first they were gladly hearing him. Verses 14 and 15 describe the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. He went to the power of the Spirit. News about Him spread through all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and we're told in verse 15 that He was praised by all. And no doubt the people of Nazareth heard about this. All the miracles that He was doing and how He was praised by all. And, and so they gathered that day on the the Sabbath day at the synagogue. When Jesus came to town, one author says that he returned as somewhat of a celebrity. To those who might say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The people of his hometown, at least at that point, would say, well, here's something good. Here's the, the hometown boy. Here's the one who is praised by all for all of his mighty works. And so on that Sabbath day, Jesus, as his custom was, went to the synagogue and he stood up to read and the, the scroll of Isaiah was given to him. And Jesus deliberately found the place from Isaiah chapter 61 and he read these words, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, and verse 20 says that he sat down and, and, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon Jesus. I suppose wondering what now he was going to say. And after reading his text, then he began with this statement in verse 21. He said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In my curiosity as a preacher, I would have loved Luke to have his whole sermon here. Because he took that text of scripture from Isaiah 61, and then he preached on that passage. And I think every seminarian would love to hear Jesus take a passage of scripture and preach on it, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? Luke gives us part of that, and he explains, uh, describes the sermon. Verse 22 says, And all were speaking well of him, and they were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. <laughs> kind of an interesting description of, of Jesus preaching, the gracious words that were falling from his lips. A.T. Robertson says the words came out of the mouth of Jesus in a steady stream. And it must have been a... Can you imagine that? Uh, sitting there listening to Jesus himself preach. 
What an amazing event that must have won. Then they must have been sitting on the edges of their seats. How could they not be when Jesus, the Son of God, was preaching? They marveled at what he said. But the problem with the response to Jesus' message is that it didn't change them. One author says they admired his words, but they were totally unmoved and unaffected by their meaning. Is that possible to come to a worship service, to hear the word of God, to admire the message, and to walk out unchanged? It happens. It happened during the time of Ezekiel. Listen to what Ezekiel said in chapter 33, verse 30. The Lord says, But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes from the Lord. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? You've got to hear Ezekiel. You've got to hear him preach. But he goes on to say, verse 31, They come to you as people come. And sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. And then the Lord says, Behold, you are to them like a song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. They admired his preaching. They admired Ezekiel. They said, you've got to come and hear this guy. Oh, he just, he, he, the words just flow from him. Oh, what a wonderful preacher. But they didn't do what he had to say. They didn't listen to his word. And I would suggest to you there are people like that today who come to our churches and they walk out the door and they shake your hand. And they say, Pastor, that was a wonderful sermon. And I feel like asking, well, what are you going to do about it, huh? <laughs> are you going to walk out unchanged? Marvel at a message, but no intention of applying it to your life. Well, that's what we see here. Some were fascinated with Jesus' preaching. A second thing we notice is that some were familiar with Jesus, only superficially Knowing him must have been quite a thing to grow up in Jesus' hometown. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a brother of Jesus or to be a co-worker of Jesus or to be a mother, the mother of, of Jesus? Can you imagine what that must have been like? We know that Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. Tempted in all ways like we are yet without sin. And I often wondered what it was like for Mary. You know, when she gathered with the, the local ladies for tea or coffee, whatever they drank. And maybe some of the mothers were saying, you know, I'm really struggling with Jim or Caleb or Jim or Jim or Caleb. Um, I don't know what to do. And Mary just sits there, you know, and other, yeah, yeah, Micah, he's a problem, and Matt, and, you know, I just don't know what to do. And Mary just sits there, and someone says, well, don't you ever have trouble with Jesus? Well, no. He always obeys. 
Yes. He honors you? <laughs> yeah. All the time. Think of that young man growing up in this town, known by these people, the perfect, sinless Son of God. They should have noticed that there was something different about this young man. But you get the impression that they, they, they missed it. The gracious words which were falling from his lips, and what was their response to say, Is this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Matthew makes this comment as he describes Jesus in Nazareth. Matthew chapter 13. Verse 54 says, He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get these things? So as Jesus preached in the synagogue that day, they could say, well, we, we know this man. We know him. He's the carpenter's son. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. We're familiar with, with Jesus, huh? But therein lies the problem, right? They were only familiar with Jesus. They could tell you some things about Him, but they did not know Him in a personal way. They did not have that living relationship with Him, acknowledging Him as their Savior and their Lord. So they were fascinated with His preaching. They were familiar with His family, but that was about it. And I would suggest to you again, our churches are filled with people like that. Fascinated with Jesus in one sense, familiar with Him. They can tell you Bible stories, what Jesus did, but that's about it. Just familiar with Him. Don't really know Him personally, but yeah, I could tell you a, a few things about, about Jesus. Thirdly, some were frustrated with Jesus, only selfishly wanting Him. Verse 23, Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. Although they were amazed at His teaching, Jesus said, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, it isn't surprising that they had heard about what Jesus had done in Capernaum. Because the Gospels, tells us, the Gospels tell us that Capernaum was one of those cities where most of Jesus' miracles were done. Uh, you read in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, and he, he, he mentions various cities where Jesus has been and said, Woe to you! Woe to you! All these miracles done. In fact, when he describes uh, Capernaum, he says if these things would have happened in Sodom, they would have repented long ago. Oh, Capernaum, all the, all the miracles that had happened there. And so the people of Nazareth, they had heard about that. And they were thinking, well, why does, why does he do things in Capernaum and not here? Why would he do all of these miracles in that town? After all, Nazareth is his hometown. 
If He's going to perform miracles anywhere, well, it certainly ought to be here in Nazareth. So you get the impression that they have, could we say, a sense of entitlement? Would that be the right way to describe it? They seem to think that they deserve it. So they don't really love Jesus as their Savior. They want Jesus to prove that He's the Messiah by doing something for them. And if He isn't going to do something for them in their hometown, His hometown, why would we follow Him? He's just going to do this, all of His miracles there. Do nothing here. How fair is that? Is that the spirit of our day? Is, is it a consumer mentality when it comes to Jesus? What have you done for me lately? Huh? Come to church and we sing, it's all about you, Jesus, but we live as it's all, if it's all about me. What's in it for me? I remember serving home mission congregations and someone would come and visit. They'd look at their little group and uh, kind of wonder, whoa, this really wasn't what I expected. Um, what do you have for children's ministry? What do you have for youth? What do you have for men's? What do you have for women's? And all the lists of all the things they wanted. And I told them many times, I said, you know, if you're looking for a church that has everything lined up for you, this is not the place, as you can see. However, if you are looking for a place where you can serve, a place where you can use the gifts that God has given to you, this is the place. What do you think most of them did? Oh, thanks, and never saw some again. Why? So many are thinking the same thing. It's, it's about me. What, what's in it for me? And so some were fascinated with Jesus. Some were familiar with Jesus. Some were frustrated with Jesus. If you're going to do it Capernaum, do it, do it here. But then finally, some were furious with Jesus, tragically rejecting him. Luke gives us a glimpse of how Jesus ended his sermon and why the people in the synagogue were angry with him. In verse 24, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, none of those in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Could they deny that? Absolutely not. That's what the Old Testament made very clear. It was just to that widow. And he says there were many lepers in the time of Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And notice the response of the Nazareth people. All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on their way. So much for the hometown welcome, huh? Started with wondering at the, the words that were flowing from his lips and it ended with, we've got to kill this guy. We've got to throw him off the cliff. Who in the world does he think he is? Huh? 
The two miracles that Jesus mentions here at the conclusion of his sermon were performed for Gentiles. And these Gentiles were the only ones who experienced those miracles. One was a widow from Sidon, one was Naaman the leper from Syria. And that truth was very hard for the people of Nazareth to accept because they felt that they should have received at least some special treatment from God. After all, they were his people. But Jesus makes it clear that that's not really how it works. Richard Lenski says the gifts of God's grace, in particular the works of his power, are not bestowed because of nationality or outward connection of any kind. Nazareth has no claims against Capernaum, nor for that matter Capernaum over any, against any other city. He said all the widows and all the lepers and all Israel had no claims that God recognized over against the widow of Sidon and, the, and Naaman of Syria. There are no claims that coerce God. He bestows the gifts of His grace and mercy freely without any human merit or worthiness. And to the people as proud of their heritage as the Jews of Nazareth were, that claim made them very angry. Very angry. But there was another thing that Jesus wanted to teach them. Both of these individuals that he mentions from the Old Testament trusted God's word because they realized they had no other hope, no other place to turn. They were helpless and they knew it. Remember the widow? She was out gathering sticks to kindle a fire. And she said that she was going to bake a meal for her and her son that we may eat it and die. That's how bad it was. Remember what Elijah said? Don't be afraid. He said, go home and just make a, make a small cake of bread for me first. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not be run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. And so even though she had basically nothing, she, she, she took the word from God, from the prophet, at heart, and she did exactly what he said. And amazingly, that's exactly what, what happened. And then Naaman, Second Kings chapter 5. Remember him? He had the dreaded disease of leprosy. And he was told to go and dip in the Jordan River seven times. At first he thought, wait, wait, wait a minute. Aren't the rivers of Damascus better than this Jordan River? And his servant came and said, Master, if he had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Just, just take him at his word. He took the prophet at his word, at his helpless condition, dipped in the Jordan River seven times, and he came up and his flesh was restored like that of a child. So both of these stories are cause for joy, aren't they? But instead of rejoicing in what the Lord had done for the Gentiles, the people of Nazareth were furious because they knew that Jesus was applying this passage to them. As Isaiah prophesied, Jesus had come to save the spiritually poor, the spiritual captives, the spiritually blind, the spiritually oppressed. But they didn't think that they were poor. They didn't think they were blind. They didn't think they needed to be set free. They were fine just the way they were. 
who needed a Savior, certainly not them. All those people out there, yeah, they needed a Savior, but, but not, not us. Not us. Are you one of those who don't think you need a Savior? One of those religious people who kind of look at your life and say, you know what? I'm not so bad. <laughs> look at all I do. I give to the church and I serve in various ways and I... I'm a good parent, and I pay my taxes, and after all, I'm not one of those out there. I read about a large British church that had three mission churches under its care. The first Sunday of the year, all of those congregations would gather together for one very large communion service. And from those mission churches, there were people that were saved whose lives had been so radically transformed, alcoholics and, and thieves and so forth. And here they were, gathered together to, to worship and to celebrate communion. Well, one of those Sundays, there was a former burglar sitting by a judge. In fact, it was the judge who had sentenced this burglar to... Uh, his time in, in prison. But after he came out, that burglar became a dedicated Christian worker, and there they were, side by side at the communion table. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor, and he said to him, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion table this morning? The two walked along for a few minutes, and then the judge said, What a miracle of grace. What a miracle of grace. And the pastor thought he was talking about the burglar. He said, you mean the burglar, right? He said, no. He said, I don't mean the burglar at all. He said, I mean me. And here's what he said. He says, I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman. That my word was to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and all those things. I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be. Though, in fact, I too was a sinner. He said, Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Jesus. He said, Pastor, I am the greater miracle. I'd agree with that. Sometimes the hardest people to reach are the, the good ones, right? You know, I keep my word. I, I go to church. I don't do this and I don't do that. It's those people out there that need Jesus, but I think I'm doing just, just fine myself. It's hard to reach people like that. I think of 1 Corinthians when Paul describes those of the church. He said, not many of you were noble, not many of you were mighty, not many of you were you know, the uppity-ups of society. But God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I remember someone saying, it doesn't say not any, but not many. And this judge was one of those that recognized 
his need for Jesus. People of Nazareth, they didn't want to hear it. They did not want to hear the truth and they wanted to get rid of Jesus. I pray that you're not like one of them today. Churchgoer, religious person, you look at your own life and say, you know, I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) You're just as lost as anyone else. And you need a Savior as well. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And when we recognize that we are lost, that's when the gospel of Jesus becomes so precious. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, for the reason Jesus came to set the captive free, to give sight to the blind. Oh, God, I pray that we would realize that apart from you, we are captives. We are spiritually blind. We are in need of a Savior, and you are the one who saves us. Oh, God, do your work in our hearts this morning for the glory and the praise of your name. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.